Dessert is served for the evening crew. Through sinusitis and all the other shenanigans. So are we ready for another week of tons of science fiction? If so, give me a hell yeah in the chat. But anyways, on to the story. When Death Worlders Meet, Part 11. Stephen reached out to catch Aranus as she fell, though there was only so much he could do from his reclined position against her dense weight. He collapsed under her, his back slamming against the floor. Her head landed next to his, so close that her open mouth practically surrounded the side of his face, a hot, humid breath of air buffeting his senses. Earlier, he would have estimated her weight to be around 75 kilos. Now, having collapsed while standing, she had felt at least twice that heavy. He couldn't move a muscle while pinned under her. He first tried to remove the dart from her side to get a better look at it, but he found that he could not. The moment he tried to move, he felt her fighting against him, her arm pressing down into his. She whispered, her long tongue licking his ear. His translator did its best as she tried to speak with her mouth gaping and awkwardly pressed against his head. He got the general idea. Clay, dead, trust me. Without a second thought, Stephen went limp and closed his eyes. He felt her chest against him, slowly inhaling, then exhaling in a sigh of relief. They waited like that for seconds, then minutes. He was about to take a short nap made more difficult by her weight and a high body temperature, when he heard the door to the cargo hold sliding open. He opened his eyes just the tiniest fraction to the bright light outside, enough to see several figures silhouetted. The first one, he could tell, was Ginter. The others, maybe four. He had no idea beyond the fact that they all looked to be holding some kind of rifle. He readied himself to hold Aranus in place in case she decided to attack without warning. Yes, it looks like the altered night beast serum I prepared has knocked them both out. He could hear the centauroid doctor loudly saying from the doorway, It's safe. You can move her into the cage. I'll wait right here. Stephen could feel Aranus salivating, the warm fluid starting to pull around his cheek and ear. He really wanted a Q-tip and maybe a small towel, and she really needed a breath mat, or twenty. One of Ginter's escorts shoved the doctor in her upper back with the butt of his rifle. Not good enough, veterinarian, the crewman replied. You know what the captain said. Your drugs, you get to go in first to make sure they're not cold. We'll wait here. With another prod, he could see the doctor slowly trotting towards Aranus and himself, her hooves softly clapping against the deck plate with each step. He readied himself to hold Aranus tight if he had to. It would not help any of them to have her disembowel the good doctor. To his immense relief, he felt only his companion's hot breath and what might have been a growl from her stomach, even as the doctor hovered over them prodding them each with the turn of a hoof. Aranus made no move. Yes, my formulation has worked. They are definitely both out, the doctor said, stepping back. You can move them now. I would hurry, though. The effects of the drug may not last long. This is the first time we've tried something like this on the human species. Look at her. Not so tough now, is she? asked one, stepping over to where they lay. Stephen could see Ginter by the doorway now, staring right at him and nodding her head up and down in an exaggerated motion. No, she's nothing, said another crewman, crouching down beside them. He poked Aranus in the side. Look at her. She tried to protect her boyfriend. Ah, too bad, the witch. As soon as we got back into your cage, he's getting plasma bolts to the head. Those two were joined by the two others, and still Aranus hadn't betrayed any sign of life beyond the rise and fall of her chest. He could feel her breathing faster and her heartbeat pounding into his chest. Beyond that, however, 
She didn't move a muscle as each alien took one of her appendages in hand, tentacle, or other grasping organ. He began to wonder if perhaps something had gone wrong with the plan that everyone but him knew about, if she had been paralyzed, and if he would have to be intervene. He had almost resolved to stop them from taking her into that cage when a head fell into his lap. He rolled to his feet just as the creature that looked like a praying mantis bred with a buffalo fell to the deck, its head separated from its body by a good two meters now. Something with tentacles began to bring its rifle to bear on Aranus, only for Stephen to smoothly pry it away. He shot it half a dozen times while Aranus landed just as many of her powerful kicks to the third crewman. It occurred to Stephen that she might have been going easy on him on their tussle. Very easy. With both hands, she held onto the being a half meter taller than her while her hind legs kicked up into his abdomen and then slashed downwards. On the upswing, her legs operated like a kangaroo's might, stabbing into the alien with a dagger-like claws. On the downswing, her claws dug in deep, ripping and tearing and spilling blood, guts and bone with each motion. It was like being on the receiving end of a massive, intelligent, and angry reciprocating saw. When it looked like she was holding up to the being up by herself, all ability to stand on its own having departed with its knife, she bit into its throat out of good measure. That only left the fourth crewman, who had backed himself away from the pair and made his way to the doorway. He held his rifle at the ready, taking turns aiming at Stephen, then at Aranus, as he carefully shuffle-stepped backwards. He was too scared to think rashly, Stephen rationalized, and had defaulted to trying to hold him in place. In moments, he would come into his senses and decide whether to fully commit to shooting or running. It was too late, though. The crewman had already made one fatal mistake. Situational awareness. Narrowness where her part had begun edging her way into the shadows and out of the swath of light cast by the open doorway. In front of her, she held the remaining upper half of the last crewman that she had killed, its entrails still spilling out, ostensibly as protection from the plasma rifle. It was equally as likely that she was just a nervous eater as she continued to bite off chunks from her kill and swallow as she apprehensively eyed the gunman. Stephen had begun to consider dropping his weapon and storing for time when, for the second time that day, a head hit him in the stomach. Or rather, most of her head. The blow hadn't been nearly as clean as the one of Aranus's slashes. Ginter's hind legs landed with an echoing thud and a bloody hoof prints. She then turned back around to face the pair. Let's go, she shouted. End of chapter. Another day, another story, another bit of dessert to go with the noms. That is, Tifos. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Are you ready to rumble? When Death Will This Meet, Part 12 Stephen stepped around the fourth and final crewman, a crumple and bloody heap thanks to Ginter's devastating mule kick. She was the biggest creature on the ship, but that wasn't saying much when almost everyone else aboard was one half or double his height. He suspected that many of the inhabitants aboard were from low-gravity worlds, and that had something to do with it. Even after having spent so long at Zero-G, this place still made him feel unnaturally light at his feet. At around 155 centimeters at her middle shoulders, Ginter's lower profile appeared similar to a full-grown buck reindeer. From her middle shoulders to her upper shoulders, she might have been an androgynous human of average adult size. Her head could be compared to that of a mule deer with a forehead, with a six horns and a place of antlers. She sported a short coat of fur over every millimeter of her body, with small, fine hairs as a lower layer, and longer, coarse hairs as an upper layer. Her coloration ran a gamut from light brown to dark brown, interspersed with darker spots and fading to a tannish white at her chest. Underside, Andrea. She, like everyone but he and Aranus, wore no clothes, nor a hint of clothes, 
Instead, she opted to wear a very human-like backpack on her upper half and pocketed harness in the lower half. Unlike when he had noticed his predator friend on her torn undershirt, the doctor very clearly intended to be naked. It looked appropriate, actually, given the fur already providing her with sufficient coverage. He almost felt like one needed to have a bare skin to even have the option of being in the nude. Glad to see you again, doctor, said Stephen, patting her lower shoulder as he hurried from the cargo hold into the adjoining corridor. It was then that he noticed Aranus had yet to follow. He turned back to find her crouched in the shadows of the open hold, still holding onto the corpse of her assailant. I need a moment, she said. It's too bright to see out there. My eyes will need some time to adjust. Okay, we'll wait then, Stephen replied with a nod. We don't have that kind of time, said Ginter. Maybe a minute or two to get the command deck. Tops. It's only a deck, and Tun won't expose to the vacuum to kill us. Stephen helped his crouching companion to her feet. I'll guide you until you can see, he said. No, my gentleman, that'll only slow you down. I'm on my back, called Ginter. Now, are you sure, physician? Aranus asked weakly, getting to her feet. I did not think most creatures could have... Yes, move it. Aranus indicated her most recent meal. May I bring my new friend? For the love of... Yes, just keep eating, damn it. But we have to move. Before the doctor had finished speaking, Aranus had leapt onto her lower horizontal back with her new friend still in hand. As they ran together, Stephen heard his companion talking to the rescuer. Thank you for the instructions, Aranus said. We didn't know what they meant at first, but we figured it out in short order. In truth, Stephen hadn't figured out a damn thing. Aranus must have known that there was nothing in the darts from the moment they hit. She had experience with them after all. As for them being filled with a lethal concoction, he supposed it hadn't taken her long to figure it out either. Without his companion, he would have spent a good ten minutes looking for a way to counteract the non-existent poison. He should have known that this is all just part of the doctor's plan. He had a pretty good guess that she had also been responsible for turning back on the translators. He hadn't even realized that they'd been deactivated until the night beast started talking. And thank you for not eating me, the doctor replied. I wasn't sure you would know we're all of the same side. I wanted to give you at first, Aranus said with a shrug and you made it clear that you had been prepared to faulty sleep elixir. Why help us, though, aside from the obvious? There is no aside, said the other woman. I am a slave here, and I would rather not be. As for the rest, she asked me for help when I was brought on board and examined, interrupted Stephen. I knew immediately that you'd be able to help, Ginter said to him, before turning her attention to the woman riding on her back. If you want, you can throw your leftovers off me. They're leaking onto my fur. I brought Stephen's meat rations for you. They're in my pack. Now consider it of you, physician, the other woman said, rooting through her pack, retrieving one of the entrees that he'd set aside in his cell. It was a beef brisket, and he was very jealous. She didn't, he noticed, drop her half-finished crewman. The doctor pointed to the open doorway ahead of them and to the left. Here, up this ramp, next level. A thought occurred to him. Doc, um, we've got to stop by the cells amidship. No, there isn't time, Stephen, she said. Bullcrap, he said. We have to try. What about your oath, doctor? To whom, she huffed. Holding on to the doctor with her arms around her chest, Aranus leaned over to the other woman's upper shoulders. I would be regarded as a stain on my order if we didn't try to free those people, she growled. You are guilty of cowardice, alchemist, if you fail to aid them. Do you know what that means? It means that we're going to free them, Ginter said with a sigh. Idiots, the both of you. This way. They started up the ramp and exited onto the third deck, where the slave quarters were located. Stephen hadn't seen this part of the ship on his tour, 
but recognized a prison when he saw one. At the far end, a group of crewmen were already releasing the last of the slaves from their cells. It wasn't often that the enemy did his job for him, but he wouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. He saw the two crew pointing their rifles at the slaves now pouring into the hallway. Kill those three and you all go free, one of them cried. Ah, that's why, mumbled Stephen. They don't know who you are, said Ginter. They won't know what the two are capable of. Please don't hurt them. Me? I don't think we have much of a choice, said Stephen, charging behind the cover of the cell's doorframe. He aimed his rival at the one of the armed slavers and pulled the trigger. It fell, a large smoking hole appearing in the chest before it topped out of sight. With some consternation, he noted that killing the crewman had done nothing to quell the charging mob. He tried killing another one and succeeded just as easily. He briefly considered that his enemies were unusually slow, even allowing for the normal dilating perception of time in combat. They were slow to move, slow to draw a bead on him, and slow to react. He heard a deafening sound, something between a lion's roar and what Hollywood said a velociraptor sounded like. From the corner of his eye, he saw the source. Aaron standing at a full height on Ginter's lower back, a hand on the centroid's head to stabilize herself. With her other, she tightly held the crewman meal by its dangling spinal column. Everyone paused in their tracks at the harsh war cry. All eyes were on Dame Commander. Stephen took the opportunity to shoot another armed crewman in the stomach. I am the night beast, Aranus screamed, throwing the corpse hard. It soared down the hall with such a force that when it hit the ground, it burst into splatter shower of vital fluids, bone, and gore. You will leave this place now, or I will kill every last one of you. Now that had routed the charging slave mob. To the escape pods, Stephen added. Uh, go that way. Aranus looked at him and cocked an eyebrow. He shrugged. So did she. Either she had no idea what an escape pod was, which was more than likely, or she didn't appreciate him ruining her moment, or both. The man made a mental note and sent the distress signal for the pods, or release a nav buoy, or otherwise let someone know where they were. Aranus's ploy that really wasn't a ploy at all had worked perfectly. The mob of slaves and a handful of remaining crewmen had dispersed in every single direction, but the one that would take them near him and his companions. He had to admit, she was quite intimidating. In the dark of that hole, just after their rescue, while chewing on a half a crewman, she was genuinely terrifying. In the abstract, she was a lot like the worst alien space horrors that cinema had to offer. It was more than just a bearing in behavior, as his arm could attest. And he had booped her snoot, daring her to eat him. Her vision must have adjusted sufficiently, and her strength returned, as she wasted no further time in jumping down from Ginter's back and joining him at the other woman's side. Two more decks till we're safe, the Deertar said. End of chapter. Alrighty, it is time for a finale. Yes, a finale. This is the last one of the series. Or is it? There is actually a second book, a follow-on, which I'll be doing from tomorrow. But this is the finale of the story arc. Okay, on to the story. When Death Will This Meet, Part 13. The three of them ran at a dead sprint up the next spiraling ramp and into the long hallway very similar to the one below. Along each side were rooms stacked with bunks and lockers. Personal effects were evident, along with what might have been game pieces or playing cards on tables. So far, they had been lucky. Nor the crewman had been lucky. He wasn't sure which at this point. None of them had been occupied. That changed when they made their way into the large open section. It looked like some sort of large multi-purpose room with tables and chairs of all varieties in evidence, along with hollow projectors, bit screens, and quite a few other pieces of equipment whose function he could only just guess at. 
The room looked like it could have been used for anything from dining to entertainment, to relaxing to exercising to just about anything a crewman a long way from home might want. At the moment, there sat three groups around a half a dozen crewmen each, lounging on what looked like an old Roman canal. He might have let them live had they not moved a muscle. But no, not after he noticed that they were being served and serviced by at least a dozen slaves. A calmness came over him and he gave a mental shrug. Maybe Aranus was right, but it certainly didn't take much for him to stop seeing these creatures as people. He raised his rifle in a chorus of wide-eyed shouts, whoops, and screams from all present. They began preparing to scatter like roaches. No one move, he bellowed, and everyone in the room froze in place. He scanned the room, ready to punch neat little superheated holes in anyone who even looked like they might try to go for their weapons or resist. By all rights, he should have started shooting well before he opened his mouth. That would have been the tactically sound approach. But no, he had something better in mind for these scum. He turned to the NASA jumpsuit-clad woman at his side. She was at least as angry as he was at this point, maybe more so. Chivalry being what it was, he had an idea not to use Aranus, so much as harness her into providing something so much more deserving than a simple death. My lady, he said, my delicate masculine sensibilities have been gravely offended. Would you mind killing everyone who is presently sitting on one of those chairs? Adley, my gentleman, she replied with a snarl. He could see her preparing to bounce in the corner of his eye when one of the slavers, looking from Stephen to Aranus and back again, decided to beg for his life. Apparently, it had heard what he had said. Wait, the creature shouted, pushing a slave off its lap. He stood up and addressed Aranus. I'm a male too, and you wouldn't hurt an unarmed man, would you? I might, she responded. Stephen could tell that she was generally mulling it over. He knew that she was used to getting in the heat of battle, or in desperation. But this was something different, even if deserved. Add to that the fairly obvious fact that her society, and more than likely her entire species, was deeply matriarchal, and these sorts of executions posed a somewhat of a challenge to her culture and trading. Fine, said Stephen, pointing his rifle at the creature's head. I'll do it. Single combat, the being shouted, his hands moving to cover his face from the inevitable plasma bolt. I demand to face my attacker in single combat. No weapons, me and him. He heard Aranus let a small puff of air escape her lips. He doubted that there was much that she could say to that. Would she think less of him if he just shot the slaver? Probably. On the other hand, the thing looked like something out of a horror film on stilts. He couldn't even begin to count the number of legs. His choices were either to try and impress the violent alien super predator by fighting a living nightmare twice his height, or to chicken out and shoot the damn thing. Ginter must have known his hesitation meant that he was actually considering doing anything other than putting a hole in the crewman's thorax from a safe distance. Don't be stupid, be stupid, she said. We don't have the time for this. Just shoot them all. Let's go. Stephen handed off his rifle to the doctor. If anyone tries to interfere, we'll make a run for it. Then you use this, he said. She took the weapon and held it deftly. Stephen stepped to Aranus and pulled the young woman in for a hug. He felt her chest expand and contract in a sigh. Be safe, she whispered. He leaned in, giving her cheek a quick little lick. For luck, he said. For a moment she seemed stunned, not knowing what to say. She appeared to shrug. As if to stretch, she first brought herself up to her full height on the very pads of her feet, standing maybe ten centimeters taller than Stephen, then lowered herself down to his eye level. Leaning in, she held him tight and licked him firmly and square across the lips. For luck, she said, letting him go. Stephen turned to face the nightmare spider crab crewman and started walking. You can do it, my gentleman, called Aranus as Stephen stalked his way up to the massive monstrosity. I believe in you. Idiots, the both of you. Such unnecessary drama, she said, shaking her head in disgust, getting yourselves worked up over nothing when we should be heading to the command deck. Stephen's just going to tear him in half anyway. He heard both of his companions' votes of confidence and felt his chest swell with pride. He would need every bit of it. He wasn't sure that this was a good idea. 
he should just grab Aranus and run. But no, here he was, risking everyone's knife because it was supposedly the right thing to do. At least all the slaves were escaping, so it was a win at the end of the day. As he approached the looming spider crab beast, he began considering his attack plan. Should he make a grab for one of the legs or try and dodge them? Should he keep his distance and remain mobile or close the distance and grapple? Was the thing venomous? How strong was it? How fast was it? Come at me, creature, said the spider crab crewman. Class 12? Ha! Suck my ovipositor. Hey, um, wait a minute, said Stephen. Ovipositor? You're not a... The thing swiped for Stephen with a long pincer, and the man had an answer for the question of speed. Not very fast at all. He dodged easily, lunging forward beneath the creature so its central body loomed above him. He jumped into an uppercut. That's when the world went dark as it slammed down onto him. With a multi-limbed monster now pressing down, blocking his senses, and both of them sprawled out on the deck together, a bout of hysterical arachnophobia struck Stephen. He lashed out with both hands and feet, swinging madly as he tried to force the spindly crewman off him. He barely registered that everything around him had begun to get warm and slimy, and his opponent had indeed started its retreat, as he had hoped, albeit one piece at a time. Finally, he managed to find his footing beneath him, daggering and gasping. Where is it? he demanded of no one in particular. All around you, you lunatic, said the doctor. Honestly, you're the most deadly being in the known universe that isn't another human, whether you want to admit it to yourself or not. You could have just slapped it dead. Stephen was soaked from head to toe in alien gore from the being that had been talking to him not five seconds ago. His thermal underwear had offered approximately zero protection from alien guts. Looking down at his feet, he could see that, if anything, the doctor had understated his abilities. The spider thing wasn't torn in half so much as lumped into an odd collection of piles. He felt like throwing up. He tried his best, scolded Aranus. These monsters can be scary. There's no shame in that. Stephen wiped the blood and chitin fragments from his eyes. He noticed Kinter cradling his rifle expertly, thinking perhaps that more weapons was better than not. He reached for the one that had been next to where the spider crab had been lounging. Vectus, no more single combat. Keep that gun, Doc. Things might get hairy. Just as he lifted up the lightweight weapon into his hands, the room went bad. Apparently telling the crewman he and his friends were going to kill them all was a great way to make sure that none of them stayed put long enough for them to actually make that happen. He sighed internally. He hadn't wanted to take prisoners, certainly not after seeing how they used their slaves. But he also wanted to put a good face on humanity after all this mess came to light. That meant that he probably shouldn't kill those who were willing to surrender. As for opting to flee, though a little distasteful, shooting a retreating combatant in the back wasn't a war crime. They could be reasonably expected to return to the fight otherwise, more likely with a greater tactical advantage. Slavers, you run, you die, he shouted at the top of his lungs. You surrender, you live. It went without saying that if they fought back, that they would probably also die. Harry, take the ones running. I'll shoot the ones going for weapons, he called, hoping that she would remember which ones were slaves and which ones were slavers. Ginter, help me lay down some cover fire. Don't shoot near our girl. Aranus, for her part, didn't even notice as Stephen cut down with hot plasma the ones trying to shoot at her. She simply kept slicing into the bodies crowding the far doorway. In his adrenaline-fueled hyper-aware state, he wondered why on earth the most of these ones behind cover would risk being gunned down by Ginter and himself in order to shoot Aranus, who was busily fixated on tearing her way through those trying to flee. He could probably guess... She was meters from those hunkered down, far closer to them than Stephen, and while he and Ginter were just another pair of combatants, she was so much more. Knee-deep in the remains of the fleeing crewmen, already down to the last few, she seemed like a dark, shifting mass of terror, made of lightning-quick teeth and claws, a roaring demon from nightmares made real. To them, Stephen was just a small mortal with a gun, but her... She was a dark angel of death ascended from the depths of hell itself. 
It irked Stephen that they thought so little of him as he shot yet another through the side of their head. It also scared him a little. If he couldn't pin these guys down because they couldn't be bothered to pay attention to the man shooting a weapon at them, he put his partner at serious risk. In what was at this point a truly unsurprising amount of time, the entire matter became moot. After decapitating the last of the escaping crewmen, Aranus spared not a single instant before leaping on the first of the trio of the slavers, who had neither attempted to flee, surrender, nor had been shot by Stephen. In the light gravity, the young woman launched like a rocket from the doorway, giving the lieutenant colonel and the doctor precious little notice to shift their fire away so that they would not commit fratricide. In as many seconds, Aranus had leapt to each of the three crewmen, having neatly sliced through their largest and mostly centered areas of mass, in one case practically bisecting him or her all the way through. Stephen guessed that at this point her speed wasn't so much due to the train deficiency of a killer, but the fact that she'd stopped taking the time to eat. She probably had a full just wasn't hungry anymore, judging by the slight bulge of her previously lean tummy, evident even beneath his sprite suit. Fine, good, we're done here, said Ginter, trotting to the doorway at the end of the room. Stephen in tow. She pointed back to the way they had come and spoke loudly. Escape parts of that way. If you are alive, you should consider yourself free to get the hell out of the ship before you die with the rest of us. Shit, let's get going. Stephen had felt a slight and disquieting breeze of cold air in the spaceship. A moment later, he heard the hissing. He broke into a run, heading for the last ramp that would take them to the command deck. His accomplices just behind. He must have been holding out hope that the firefight would have stopped us. Not enough time. Not enough time, Ginter. Can we block these vents? No, said the doctor. Not all of them. The air will be long gone before we finish seeding the vents on this deck, let alone every deck. And we'd need to do that because the captain will have locked every door open as sure as he'd have locked the command deck closed. As if he needed some proof of a word, the trio rounded the curving ramp only to run face first into a completely sealed doorway. Seeing no way to lift or pry the smooth white surface, and nothing in the way of a handle or anything else to grab a hold of, Stephen settled by banging on it. What about we just head to one of the escape pods, he asked. What are the chances we survive? Ginter made a gesture that Stephen's translator said meant negative. Even if we made it there without suffocating, she said quickly, we can't leave the slavers in command of the harvester. They'll just collect the floating parts and tow them to their home system, or shoot them out of the void. Whichever. Fine! We bust the door. Stephen, said Ginter, grabbing his shoulder and rubbing a thumb over his collarbone. They are strong, but this is a waste of time. We need a better plan. It's an interior spaceship door. It only needs to withstand 15 psi, 20 tops. And it's not just me doing the kicking, he said, returning the gesture by pressing his hand into hers with withers of rubbing his thumb over the muscles there. You're stronger than you know, Ginter. You kicked someone's head off just a pair of minutes ago and carried Aranus like a warhorse riding you to battle. I think between all three of us we can do this. She looked livid, almost like he had offended her. Damn you to hell, Stephen. We'll talk about that later. But that does not mean we can do this. I am is running out, shouted Aranus, grabbing the doctor by the head and turning the other woman to face her. She stared daggers into her eyes. You will help us now, like the ancestor's damned beast of a burden, and kick that damned door down, or I'll tear your heart out and let your soul rot adrift amongst the stars for all eternity. Stephen placed a gentle hand on the back of the enraged woman's neck and coaxed her to one side of the door, pointing at it. Aranus nodded. He stood in the middle of the doorway before nodding to Ginter. You're on that side, where I think it probably latches. I can't aim with two hooves, she said. Hitting that man in the head was just a lucky shot. Then use one, he said. Ready? Now! Stephen and Aranus fell flat on their faces, each trying to grab a hole of the other to brace their fall. They both ended up on the ground and an ungainly tangle of each other's limbs, with Stephen wondering just what in the hell happened. Neither of their kicks had made contact with anything. He was sure of it. 
Looking around, the man realized that they were both lying on the floor of the command deck, just across the entranceway that they had been on the opposite side of an instant ago. The door itself was nowhere to be seen, leaving him to conclude that it had slid into a recess and admitted them. Ginter, having had the benefit of owning a total of four legs and only using one to kick, remained standing. She gave them the equivalent of a shrug as he and Aranus delicately untangled themselves from each other and got to their feet. You are going to break down the door anyway, called the captain. Even Stephen could tell from the man's natural voice that he had to be somewhere on the expensive deck, as opposed to speaking from a distant location via intercom. He could tell that the slaver had to be... Don't shoot, I'm unarmed, said the captain, stepping out from behind one of the command consoles. Stephen trained his weapon on the man, as did Ginter. The captain held his hands spread wide apart, empty palms facing forward. Even if that had been the universal gesture for feck you, Stephen could still tell the man had nothing at all, dangerous or otherwise. Behind the man, another slaver whom Stephen recognized, Mashy, the executive officer, made his way out from hiding, his tentacles spread wide. He too held nothing in his gasping appendages. You're surrendering, Stephen asked in disbelief, just like that. The captain made the equivalent of a shrug. You literally tore through my entire crew, yes. I'm sorry, but I think that this creature is tricking us, said Aranus, bounding gently on her toes. Stephen wondered what that meant. Nervousness, indecision, and another context that might have been cute. I wanted to kill you all, and Tuktun said. I would have simply opened fire as soon as I opened the hatch, not set up as an elaborate trap. I don't know. I don't like this either, Aranus. Stephen saw nothing out of the ordinary. That could mean nothing. I'm begging of you, said the captain. Spare us. We mean you no further harm. This ship is yours now, Captain Human. This is no trick, just a conclusion that being at your mercy will keep us alive longer than shooting at you will. You killed a fully armed crew. You had inside help from that treacherous doctor. You could tear this ship apart with your bare hands, and that is no hyperbole. History has shown that even a death walter aboard a starship will kill everyone, let alone three. I'm merely bowing to the odds. Aranus growled. Stephen could tell that she didn't like this turn of developments. After what she'd been through, the temptation to gut him must be overwhelming, though equally conflicting with his sense of honor. Of course, he wouldn't dream of stopping her if she simply lost control. The lieutenant colonel held his weapon a little tighter, but pointed it down to the ground. Narinus had still not made a move. The earlier threats to personally disembowel him and devour his flesh notwithstanding... Ginter, he noticed, had curiously raised her weapon to point it at the captain, and she had just ripped the safety off. Whoa, whoa, whoa! He slapped his hand against the barrel of her rifle, pushing it to the side. It took a surprising amount of force to get her point of aim to shift it away from the captain. The doctor began to struggle against Stephen, but made little headway until she began sidestepping into him with her haunches, simply pushing him aside with a balk. Ginter made a whining, plain of noise as she continued to try her best to wrestle the weapon back on target. He knows, Stephen. He must die. Keeping an eye on Antikton and Marshy, the lieutenant colonel opted to stop pushing the rifle away and instead simply pulled it free from her grasp and threw it to the side. The two slavers had not made a move for any concealed weapons or tried to activate any device or explosive. That had been their best opportunity to spring a trap and they hadn't done anything. Perhaps he should give them the benefit of the doubt. At the moment, however, he wanted to know just what the hell had gotten into the doctor, and so did Aranus. Physician, she asked, I agree with the warden deserves death, but he is surrendering. To my people, and I think to Stevens as well, it is considered rude to kill someone in such a circumstance. Only an appointed magistrate or a lady may pronounce his death now, said Aranus. She gave Stephen a conspiratorial eye. Or, um, a ship's captain. Though, I'm curious, what does he know exactly that you believe that he must die for? Ginter grunted. Stephen wanted to know the answer to that question as well. He thought back to a few minutes ago, just before he and Aranus had less than gracefully made their entrance onto the command deck. Though, he hadn't really known her for very long, 
That was the only other time that he'd seen Ginter nearly this upset. Almost like a switch had been flipped. It had happened just after he'd mentioned how strong she was. Deathworlders, Stephen said to Anticton. You called us Deathworlders. You also said it before, just after you locked me in that room with Aranus. Is that something significant? A word for races that are stronger than the wet tissue paper the rest of you seem to be made of. Exactly, said Anticton. It is a compliment, really. We would all love to be able to tear someone's head off as easily as opening a beverage, wouldn't we? Ginter doesn't seem to like being called that, said Stephen. A spy and a traitor, the former captain gave a shrug of equivalence. Her type doesn't like the truth, doesn't like being uh, found out. What do you mean? asked Stephen. The captain gave a knowing smirk. Ask her if she doesn't want to come clean. I'm asking you, growled Stephen. Ginter looked like she might charge the man. Aranus kept her hand on the other woman's back, but Stephen had serious reservations about how much good that would do, beyond giving Aranus a very short ride to the middle of a bloodbath. Antictum made a gesture of equivalent to rolling his eyes. The veterinarian isn't from Vree, a class three world. She probably isn't even Chakoth. She's from the death world like you and Lady Aranus of Karamast. Could also be some kind of engineered soldier. And I doubt it. She hardly seems the type. So what? said Stephen. Is this some kind of obscure space politics? What does it matter what world she's from? I don't understand. Of course you don't, whispered the doctor. And that's why I like you. And Aranus. It doesn't matter to you and your kind. But to the rest of the galaxy, it does. We, um, the three of us, are from worlds that aren't supposed to harbor sapiens. If you ask them, we pose a serious risk to all other life in the galaxy. That is how you are able to tear the Tuskrook to pieces, how Aranus was able to kill an entire ship with the bare hands, and how I was able to carry her on my back and kick that man's head off. That's what gave me away, I imagined. Why would you want to hide that? Stephen asked. It seems like something I would want to let other people know about me. If they knew that, they might not even have taken you into slavery. Even as he said it, he realized an obvious conclusion. She wanted to be taken. Or at least, it was better than some alternative she faced. Because, Stephen, the powers that be in the galaxy, as much as they don't like to admit that death wilders even exist, have a policy to address us. Should they ever find us? 100% quarantine until the race reaches independent extrasolar flight. Then it's extermination. Probably by something as simple as lobbing a few asteroids our way. There is evidence that this has happened before. Conspiracy theories. Why have plans to destroy species that don't even exist? Yelled the former captain. You're not going to listen to that wacky job, are you? As opposed to the abusive slaver pleading for his life? Asked Aranus. Why bother waiting for us to become spacefaring? asked Stephen, entertaining her suggestion. Because most races, death wilder or not, end up destroying themselves anyway. It is just a byproduct of civilization. All life is competitive, carnivorous or not. Radiological weapons, heat death, pollution, engineered disease, all have killed worlds. Aeons ago, a civilization even created a vast satellite swarms around this sun to reduce power, with each political faction producing and controlling their own set. They ended up weaponizing them. They're still active today, and the planet is mostly in accretion disk now. Suicide is more convenient than murder, even on a planetary scale. And your people are spacefaring? asked Stephen. Yes, and yours are too, now said Ginter. That gave him pause, though it was a natural instinct. He was suddenly very glad that he hadn't provided any information to the slavers. How did the captain not know who or what you were? asked Aranus. He certainly thought I was dangerous, and one could summarize that it did not take him long at all to reach the same conclusion for Stephen. How were you able to hide? And if you were not unawares of this great community of daemons and their machinations concerning our kind, why did you allow them to take you? Ginter huffed. Stephen's translator told him that it was a sigh. I might as well tell you in front of them. The captain knows enough now that the wrong people can piece together the rest of his starts talking. I am a Shulkoth, and not engineered either. 
Not artificially, anyway. You colonized a death world, interrupted the captain. Shut your face, or I will remove it, Arana shouted back. When the Shulkoths were first leaving Vree millennia ago, we did so in a corporate-sponsored generation ships. A few natural disasters, war, man-made catastrophes, and time meant that more than a few were lost to the homeworld. Garakthkoth, my planet, is almost as deadly as either of your worlds. We knew of the gravity, atmosphere, and weather before we left Re, so we had generations to accommodate. But our history tells us that most were lost in the years after landfall. Maybe up to nine out of every ten people. But we persevere, and I'm a descendant of that lineage. She shook her head slowly, looking to the ground. When she spoke again, it was barely a whisper, a hiss of disgust through clenched teeth. Imagine our surprise when we finally began exploring the stars again. When our investigations on other worlds, dead worlds, informed us of our dedication to survival and marked us for extermination. Imagine my surprise when one of my farming outposts was raided by slavers, the fishermen of the galactic economy. I played the Vreen rather than expose my civilization to death. She gestured to the former captain. That man traded a pair of sublight engines to get me. I would have lived like that, forever a pathetic Vreen slave, if I had to, if I couldn't find a way to escape. Then you came. Then... They found you, Stephen. Your race had no more time. I couldn't let them do to you what we had seen them do to other worlds. That's why you helped me, said Stephen. Why you told me what these guys were about back when I was first brought aboard. Thank you. And that's why I would do anything to ensure knowledge of my people's existence doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Just knowing that a Shulkoth death world exists would be enough to send people looking for it, she said. I have to admit, I was a bit disappointed in you, Stephen. Why? Stephen asked. You're too nice, she said. I was kind of expecting you to begin a rampage with me a lot sooner and not get tricked into the cargo hold. For the sake of your people, I needed you to make a move before we made landfall at a slaver outpost. Before anyone else might see what you could do, and draw some conclusion. I was feeling him out. I was going to escape, but I'm not going to start a fight on just the word of one person. Especially when these guys are so big and... Stephen paused, scratching the side of his face. Yeah, I think I just figured out where you're going with this. What? Aranus asked. I feel like I'm missing something important. He instigated this, you dumb beast, said Antictun, gesturing to the centaur she told me Stephen was a deathworlder, or pointed me at the right direction, which amounts to the same thing. She wanted me to try and kill him. You too should feel betrayed. So you put the gentleman in the dungeon with me and opened my cell. I suppose I should thank you, said Aranus with a slight bow at the waist. As much as I hate being used, you made the right call, said Stephen. I'm not sure that I would have attempted my escape in time, even if they'd spaced me then and there. It was the right call. Spaced? asked Aranus. Stephen had forgotten that many of these concepts were totally new to the young woman, although she was deceptively quick learner. Left my body adrift amongst the stars, he clarified. And how exactly is that a good decision? Aranus asked Ginter with a slight growl and an accusatory stare. No ship of his own, no body, no evidence at all, barely an inkling of where he might have come from, said the doctor. It would have bought his race time. It's better than Stephen waiting until it's too late to make his move. And it was also the least plausible outcome. Stephen wouldn't be dumb enough to walk into an airlock, and any weapon that won't put a hole right through the ship's hull won't permanently injure us. I thought Stephen fighting his way to control the ship was a very good bet. Getting himself locked in a room with what I took for a vicious predator. No offense, Harriness. None taken, physician, said the other woman. Was very much not part of my plan. I had to improvise, so kudos to you for keeping me on my feet. Former captain and Tukton. So, Stephen, could I please have the weapon so I can kill this pile of crap? Stephen spared a glance back to the weapon that he'd thrown from the woman's arms, then back at the slavers. He licked his lips, mulling it over. Ah, well, uh, that would be one way to handle the situation, but, um... 
No, Captain, she said, placing a gentle hand on his shoulder, rubbing his collarbone with his thumb again. It's the only way. It's the only way to keep us, our kind, safe from the galaxy. You must understand that. He felt a strong discomfort creeping up on him. Between this woman's touch, the closeness of her imposing bulk, and the strength he had seen in those legs, he began a mental rundown of whether or not it was a good idea to punch a rampaging horse. It is possible to imprison them on one of our worlds, Stephen said. We can inform our peoples of the situation and let them handle it. The abductions occurred in their territory. They have jurisdiction. So do you, Captain, she whispered. Ginter's hand tightening almost imperceptibly on his shoulder. We vote, physician, said Aranus. Then we will abide by the captain's decision. Ginter turned to the other woman, appearing annoyed. Fine, she said. I vote they stand before a magistrate, said Aranus. I vote to kill them, said Ginter. And I vote that they also stand trial, said Stephen. So be it, hissed the doctor. Stephen handed his weapon to Aranus before marching over to the pair of slavers. Grabbing them each by an appendage, they were surprisingly soft. Stephen asked, looking to one of the speakers embedded in the bulkheads. He'd seen the other slavers doing much the same thing before the escape. Do you respond to me now? Yes, Stephen, you are the captain, came the digitized reply in English. The former captain ceded a command to you at 4681.93.62.13 in the afternoon. He dragged the pair into the command deck's airlock and slapped the control for the inner hatch. The former captain began to protest. What are you? He shoved them roughly inside and slapped the control again to shut the door. Ginter looked pleasantly surprised. She had the wrong idea. He just didn't want them to have any clue where they were going until they got there. It was a space equivalent of tossing them in the trunk of a ground car, he imagined. Do not open the inner or outer door in this airlock to anyone but me, he said. Now can you find the location of my homeworld using the location you found me, the distance I traveled, if provided, and the direction I was traveling relative to the galactic center? Yes, but that will not be necessary, said the ship. I have determined that you are from RGT 9873A-3, an uninhabitable Class 12 death world. All right, said Corswell. Wait, Ginter said. I changed my vote, what? It's too late, said Stephen. And it wouldn't matter anyway. Yes, it does. And no, it's not, she quickly replied, pointing at Aranus. I also want to see him before a magistrate on her world. Stephen stared at her for a moment, then shrugged. Justice is justice. They have claim too, don't they? Both Ginter and Aranus nodded. Ship, do you know where Aranus's home is? Of course, came the reply. Good, said Corson Go, he said, pointing at the view screen. As space warped outside the ship, Aranus moved to stand close. He put an arm around her and felt very gratified when she returned the gesture, kneading her hand into his side. I'm finally going home, she whispered to him. Yeah, he whispered back, placing a kiss on the side of her head. He wasn't sure she knew what the gesture meant, but she sure didn't mind. It's our version of affectionate licking, he said. Thank you, Stephen, she replied, kissing his cheek and returned. Hey, um, Aranus, he whispered. Yeah, she whispered back. What's the penalty for kidnapping one of the Imperial Majesty Dame Commanders, he asked. Oh, if they're found guilty, death, she replied. Probably torture first, then definitely a painful death. Lots of torture, though. He glanced behind him long enough to see Ginter smirking. Stephen felt something large and painful land on his back, knocking the air out of him. It felt like a piece of furniture or a stack of books, or more likely, a wild animal. And they kept bouncing against his spine and ribs, up and down, up and down. Any attempt to move from his prone position brought pain, as sharp claws dug into his skin and fingers curled around his bicep. Daddy, 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 get up, get up, get up. Claws off the comforter, he growled at the animal. You know that. He felt the sharp points at the back of his thighs relent, replaced by bony knees. But the bouncing wouldn't cease, and neither did the prying fingers at his arms. He tried his best to ignore the disturbance, burying his face deeper under his pillow, putting it tight around his head. But that had been a mistake. 
It gave the beast something to attack, a weakness to exploit. She began prying at his fingers and pulling at the pillow, all while still bouncing up and down on his back, trying to beat the life out of him. Daddy, daddy, stop playing. It's time to get up. Beast pressed her face to his jaw, prying his pillow up just enough to expose one of his eyes. She whispered, I, I have a surprise for you. He grunted. Based on the smell alone, he could guess what it was. This would call for drastic measure. He reached slowly to the left, hand sliding carefully between the sheets so as to not arouse suspicion. He would wake the beast's mother, making contact with the warm body. He shook the creature. She grunted back, no. He pleaded with the mother of the beast, babe, no, sleep, your daughter. The die had been cast. He would make one last attempt to defeat the beast before all was lost. He rolled over towards the mother of the beast. Whee! Sarah landed with a flump on top of her mother. It had worked. The battle was over. Stephen would return to his life of peace that he'd built for himself since last night in this, his king-sized bed kingdom. Ah, uh, Fluffy Bear, your daughter wanted you. I think I heard her say that she was a surprise. Probably she didn't forget what day it was, said the mother of the beast, his wife. Deftly, Aranus yanked his only protection, his pillow from his head. She grabbed his beard and turned him to face her, drawing a long leg across his lips before tearing the blankets off of him. All hope was lost. Of course I didn't forget that it is our ten-year anniversary, he said, returning the lick with a kiss. He had gotten her a golden Irentian pearl necklace which he would surprise her with at dinner that evening. He pushed himself to a seated position in the bed, his back against the headboard, with Aranus doing the same. Have you got to bring your father a surprise, said his wife. Get your brother. I think he has one for me. But mom, he can't see in the dark, complained Sarah. Neither can I, said Stephen. Go get your sunglasses, then turn on the lights so the men of the house can see what's going on. It won't be much of a surprise if I can't see it, right? Fine, the little girl huffed. When she had cleared the room, Stephen turned to Aranus. You had something to do with this, uh, didn't you? Maybe I did, my fluffy bear, she said as coyly as she could manage. She must have been watching a lot of vids. She was getting better. The kids wanted to do something for us this year. You always tell them that damn story of how you, me, and Aunt Ginter all met. Can you blame them for getting excited? No, but does that have to be so early in the morning? He asked just as the lights came on. Though it took him a moment to adjust to the light, he noticed Arina sporting a pair of reflective gold-hued aviators that she'd kept in the nightstand. Well, that depends on the surprise, she replied cryptically. Some surprises are best enjoyed in the morning. She nodded to the doorway of their bedroom. There stood a young boy not more than eight years of age, a pale skin and dark hair, just like his father. Unlike his mother, his eyes did not glow at night, but instead appeared as green as grass. Hey, kiddo, what you got for me? Stephen asked. Hey, father, th this is for the lady of the manor. Hey, bet the boy, carrying what looked like a pile of raw steaks from six different animals and as many worlds. He presented the tray to his mother. After she took it onto her lap, she pulled him close and kissed him on the cheek and ruffled his hair. Thank you, Agonon, the boy's mother said. Such a dignified young gentleman you are. The boy bowed, looking very proud of himself. Dad! Stephen turned to the sound, just as a miniature night beast wearing lime green shorts, a loose rainbow-covered hoodie, and a hot pink sunglasses bounded through the bedroom door, claws scrabbling all over the hardwood digging in just long enough to give the good launch for a pounce onto a father. Long black hair, though tied into a ponytail, bound its way into his face. Something hard and warm was forced into his chest. One more thing, said Sarah, excitedly hurrying off her father, her claws still managing to find his calves and the comforter in the process. No peeking, she called back. Stephen shook his head and looked down at what she'd presented him. It was a large plastic cutting board from the kitchen with a metal serving tray cover covering most of it. Something warm was underneath. He reached to lift it. No peeking, my gentleman, said Aranus. The lady says no peeking, sir, echoed Agonon. 
He stuck his tongue out at his son. The boy stuck his own tongue back at him and jammed an index fingers in both of his nostrils for good measure. Even was about to tell him how he might accidentally stab his brains that way when his daughter tried to kill him for what must have been the third time that morning. Ow! You're getting big, honey, he said, rubbing the girl's back. No, you're getting small, she replied, tossing bottles of chocolate syrup, honey, strawberry syrup, and maple syrup into his lap. Thanks, kiddo, he said. Now, um, what's the surprise? She lifted the cover off the cutting board. Pancakes. The end.